Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm pleased to be joined this week from the Church Times offices by the Reverend Michael Corrin. Michael is a priest in the Anglican Church of Canada, a contributing columnist to the Toronto Star and other newspapers, and the author of more than 18 books, most recently The Rebel Christ, which has recently been published in the UK by Canterbury Press. It's available to buy from the Church House Bookshop for the discounted price of £10.39. Michael, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Pleasure to be here. Just to, to start with, um, I know you're very well known in Canada and, and you also have a, a following on Twitter and, and people here will be familiar with your writing in, in New Statesman and things like that. But for, mm. for those who aren't as familiar with you, just tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to be an Englishman living in Canada. Well, um, yeah, very much a Brit. Uh, grew up uh, in Britain and uh, I uh, was, I think, very happy here. And I was writing for the New Statesman and uh, I was writing a theatre column for Girl About Town magazine. Don't ask, but I was. And I had a couple of books out, and it was all going quite well. And I, I was writing a biography of G.K. Chesterton, who died in 1936. So the 50th anniversary in 86, there was a big conference, several hundred people held at the University of Toronto. And they invited me over to give a paper, although I wasn't an academic. And I delivered verbatim, a very dry paper, called um, G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc, The Marconi Scandal, and Edwardian Antisemitism. Now, apparently, this is a wonderful paper to give if you want to meet someone, because this beautiful young woman came up to me <laughs> at the party at the end of the conference and said, you're amazing. And thinking this may never happen again, I married her. And it hasn't happened again, but we've been married 35 years. So that's why I went to Canada. It, it was, it, in many ways, it was a rash decision. I, I, I went there and... Uh, it's been very good to me, uh, but I do miss Britain a great deal. But that's where we you know, had our children, established our family. So I'm very much a Brit, very much living in Canada. And uh, in Canada, I, I, I sort of replicated what I'd done here, journalist and author, but moved. Uh, I became a Catholic in, in 1984. So inspired by G.K. Chesterton? Partially, yes. I was raised in a very secular family. My, uh, three of my grandparents were Jewish. My father... But my mum's mum wasn't, so there's a certain ambiguity. Yeah, I think it was an intellectual conversion. Ronald Knox, Chesterton, Belloc, Evening War, and so on. And, and uh, I, was, I was received at Spanish Place. Uh, and when I went to Canada, I wasn't particularly political about my faith. But after a few years, things seemed to sort of fit into... I'm using euphemistic language here because I'm, I'm probably trying to blame someone other than myself. Uh, but I became a, rather a champion of the Catholic right. I don't mean the crazy right, but Catholic teaching. So on marriage, for example, um, I, when the debate was going on in Canada, I wasn't extreme. I, I said civil union, uh, full legal protection, respect, inheritance rights, all that sort of thing, but marriage, no. And I suppose because I was giving a fairly reasonable response, I think I did probably more harm than the crazies who were screaming. Uh, but And this went on for some time. And all over, I had about... Golly, I think I had about five regular columns in Catholic newspapers. And, and I wrote a book called Why Catholics Are Right yeah. that sold almost 50,000 copies. Oh! So oh. Many, many people still have that book. <laughs> I know. Well, actually, some people literally burnt it because oh, they said, we are burning your book. And I thought, fine, I'll still get the rules. Anyway, about 10 years ago, uh, I had, 
I suppose, a conversion. Um, you say in the book it was a sort of spiritual breakdown. I think it was it was a crisis all, moment. Yes, I, you know, I think it was even more than a spiritual breakdown. I, it was over the gay issue. I just felt that I I was causing pain to people, many of whom I knew and loved, particularly gay men who've been enormous influences in my life. And a couple of incidents occurred in North America. One was World Vision that had issued a statement saying, if you're in a same-sex relationship, you're welcome to work for us, which I assume was just affirming people who already work for them. And I thought it was a very sensitive thing to say, but the evangelical world, and not even the extreme evangelical world, reacted very, very harshly. And what they really said was, if you continue with this, really, we'll stop funding you. And so, to be blunt about it, if you are loving towards gay people, then kids in Africa won't be fed. And I remember going home, and, and I don't know if I wept, but I just thought, you cannot be part of this culture. You can't, this is not you. Why didn't you think this earlier? And it was a difficult time because I know this probably sounds crass, but also I, I was raising a family and on one income, and a lot of my work was based around my persona. But I couldn't, I couldn't carry on. And um, uh, the TV station I was working for actually closed down, which for me, not for other people, was a good thing. But I wrote a column, I had a syndicated column, and I wrote apologizing to the gay community for any harm I'd caused. And that, and this was before I was that big on Twitter, before social media was really established the way it is now. But I was inundated with lovely responses from the gay community and the most extraordinary hostility from other people. And I, I, For someone who regards himself as being very worldly, I'd always assumed that most of the people I spoke for were good, kind, loving people who simply believed that marriage was male and female. I was wrong. A lot of those people were actually, I'm sorry, but just hateful, homophobic. It wasn't the marriage issue. They simply did not like gay people, particularly gay men. And there was an obsession. I mean, I read about it in the book, but um, death threats. And they wrote to my wife saying she had to leave me. They trolled my children. My kids couldn't care less. But uh, I mean, they're tough and all that. But they went after my, one of my daughters in particular, who they assumed was gay. All my kids are boringly straight. But they, they just thought she was, it was her, and I was fired by virtually everybody. And those people who were brave enough to say, we still, you know, we really respect your voice, they were then um, targeted by organized groups saying, you've got to fire him. So pretty much everything disappeared. And, you know, there you go. A lot of people have it much tougher than that. But it, it was, what it did was to make me, it radicalized me. It, it made me look at other issues too. But thank God, it did not shake my faith. But I left the Catholic Church. And how soon after did you leave the Catholic Church after this all happened? I, I was in the process of, I was going to an Anglican church, but not receiving communion. Because ah, yes. I respected Catholic teaching. And I would sit there and think, my golly, I'm, I can be the Catholic I want to be in this church. And then after a while, I thought, I've, I've got to go. And I did. And I became an Anglican. Uh, and then a few years later, people kept saying, you should be ordained. And I said, are you joking? No way. And a few years later, I thought, well, maybe I'll try it. And I, I enrolled, then I left. I didn't even start. No, I need another year. And then, okay, I'll start. I started at seminary and got through somehow, my MDiv. And so I was ordained three years ago as a deacon and about a year and a bit ago as a priest. And did the Anglican Church of Canada appeal because of its progressive stance on, on matters of, of sexuality and its acceptance? Partly. Um, it didn't demand that I change my belief system theologically. 
Uh, I'm not a particularly high Catholic. I suppose I'm a liberal Catholic in, in my belief. But uh, what I didn't find was a group of people who didn't believe. They, these people believe passionately in, in the creed and, and in Christian teaching. But that led them to be more progressive politically. And I did. I mean, a lot of my views, I was always, for example, opposed to the Iraq war, opposed to the death penalty, was pro-welfare, forgiving third world debt. Um, so on a lot of issues, I, I wasn't conservative. I was always an erratic conservative. But I, 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 I changed on, on some issues. Of course, the critics will say, he changed on everything overnight, which is such a, a simplistic way to look at something which is, is, is deeply complex. And it was I think that people saying you, you change your views for the money. Huh. You just said you lost most of your income. Yeah, that, that's always been the, if, if only, if only I was doing it for Anglican gold or gay gold. Or, I mean, where is it? <laughs> um, well, they, they have to find a reason. They, they, because it can't be that he really believed this. Because if he does, then maybe we're wrong. And they can't come to terms with that. So it's either because, I mean, these are the arguments. He's gay. Nope. Um, one, of the, one of his children is gay, which is not an invalid reason, by the way, to rethink, but no, no, he's had a breakdown. Well, not really. He's doing it for the money. And that was the funniest one because it's never been a better time to be a conservative mm. in terms of media. There, there's platforms everywhere now. Uh, so, no, it wasn't for the money. But I'm not complaining here. You know, the Toronto Star that I'm a regular columnist for now, which is the big liberal newspaper in Canada, the comment editor, and I, one, people, these acts of kindness, he wrote to me and said, I, I see what you're going through. He said, look, I can't just take your stuff. People will be in shock. It's, I'm not famous in Canada, but there's a certain profile. And he said, write one column about what's happened and then we'll see. And I did. And it went down quite well, I think. And then gradually now I'm in there all the time. And, and other people, so... You know, I'm, I'm old now. I'm, I'm, I'm a priest. So I, I, don't, I don't write all the time. I write enough. So people have come, people have been very good generally. And you say you were, you were radicalised and, I mean, it's a good way to talk about The Rebel Christ, your book, mm. which, I mean, just first of all, I guess, why did you write the book? Who is it aimed at? Was it a sort of manifesto of here's the new Michael Corrin, what he believes? It's yeah, a good question. I wasn't going to write another book. I don't um, find them quite challenging, and I've written a, a few, and you know, some have done okay. Most have just faded away into obscurity. But it was actually, I was with Random House, and they didn't want another religious book, and they said, write us another biography. And, and I, I don't want to write another biography. And then a small, well, not a small, a medium-sized uh, Canadian publisher, you know, fairly, fairly large, but not like Random House, they approached me and said, look, we... Thinking of starting a series, I haven't seen any, any more yet, but like the progressive face of, of, of particular religions, and would you like to do a book on Christianity? Um, 50,000 words, that was music to my ears, and not too long. And I thought, that could be quite interesting. So, and they gave me a carte blanche, really, to do what I wanted to do. So I just took some major issues, and I, I put some memoir in it too, just a little bit. And it was... It, I mean, of all the books I've written, it's the one I'm most proud of, because I could say, this is me. And a lot of it's heavily scriptural on issues such as sexuality and abortion and end of life, social justice, immigration, because it really matters. You know, you, you can't just take an issue, believe in an issue because you think it's right. If, if you're a Christian, I mean, you have to show there's something rooted in scripture or theology. Or, or, and um, I've tried to do that. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a scholar. I'm just a journalist. 
But um, in Canada, it's really done quite well. And what's lovely is that a lot of people have said, um, I'm sort of, I've, I was waiting for this book and I thought these things, but I, I needed some backup. And, and a lot of atheists too, who've, who've uh, because we've got to build bridges. And lovely Stephen Fry gave me a, a blurb. And that was, it was helpful, not just because people see his name and think, oh, mm -hmm. but because here's someone who's known as an atheist, who does not hate Christians or Christianity, far from it. I mean, when I was ordained, he sent me the most, I know him a bit, he sent me the most beautiful email. And no, I mean, he also wants intelligent discourse. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite proud of it. I read a lot of books based on the Gospels. I mean, were you trying to get back to the, the roots of, of Christianity, I suppose? And do you think it's been obscure, the, the, the radicalism of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels? You, you talk about the Gospels are a revolutionary text, but the tenacity of political and religious escape artists never fails to surprise and impress me. Did I write that? That's from the book. That's yeah. quite good. <laughs> <laughs> um, we don't want to be purist or, or arrogant about it, and I certainly don't want to condemn, I would never would, conservative Christians. But you see, you can be conservative in your theology and have a radical worldview, but it is difficult to look at the Gospels in particular and conclude that this is a conservative text. Um, his way of life, who he spends time with, what he says to people, who does he criticize? It was people in power, people with wealth. Uh, and he's been, particularly from the United States, he's been turned into this character. It's like this idea, you must become more like him, not him more like you. We've all heard that, but what they've done really on the right in, in the United States in particular is they've turned Jesus into something that they are, which is Republican and guns and sealed borders. And, and, and they, have, they really have twisted scripture. Those of us who, who may be on the progressive wing of the church, perhaps, you're a cafeteria Christian. The opposite is the case. The opposite, I mean, it's really hard to, li to even try to live that gospel life. If I, I believe you have a conservative interpretation, I think that's more cafeteria Christianity. You'll pick and choose, and generally you pick and choose from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, rather than the gospels. Increasingly, I, I do believe, and as a priest, you know, most of, well, you know this better than I do probably, most of what we do is to deal with people in terrible pain and loss and despair and spend half a day on the phone to welfare office trying to get a, a room for someone. And it's hard to come out of that as a, an economic conservative. Just to quote you back at yourself again, you say Jesus was repeatedly, consistently and undeniably socialistic. And you talk about, I mean, some more conservative Christians might say, you know, giving to the poor and helping and those in need is, is good on a voluntary, personal level, but as a, on a structural or economic level, it yeah. doesn't mean Jesus endorses socialism. Obviously, there's a bit of an anachronism with... I think you acknowledge that with socialism. Yeah. Can you explain really what we mean by socialistic? Yeah, now that's a very good point because that's exactly what they say. I mean, I, I get tweets that say almost exactly that. Uh, but the state must not be involved. We live in the modern age and we know that individual charities simply can't maintain the welfare state system and then helping the poor. My favourite government, I suppose, in British history was 45 to 51, Clement Attlee and Ernest Bevin and Herbert Morrison and, and, and the rest of them. I'm not radical. Uh, but, well, I'm, I suppose I'm radical, but I'm not a hardline socialist. Um, I'm a liberal social democrat. When I say socialistic, I'm, I'm also talking in terms of, of the communal. I mean, he lived in community. He didn't own property. He lived with people also who weren't certainly of the mainstream. 
Um, so, but I would never argue that this is that Jesus was, was preaching 21st century socialism, dialectical materialism, or anything like that. But when it comes to sharing and redistribution, I think it's too meager to say only, only if it's individual charity. Christians are very charitable, they do give. But the state is not oppressive, not in the West. And when it does tax those, um, and mainly the super wealthy in particular, I, mean, I, I come from an upper working class family. I now live uh, with my wife, we have a lovely house in Toronto and, and we're middle class people. I don't, uh, when my accountant says you owe this much, I don't say, oh, wonderful. I mean, obviously you, you don't, but I think there's a moral imperative because you know mainly it's doing good. But when we have situations where people who are incredibly, breathtakingly wealthy are paying very little tax, yes, there's something wrong in that. Um, I do see something which is gospel-based in, in a state saying you will pay because we do believe in a certain redistribution. Is some of the money wasted? Yes, of course it is. But by and large, it, I mean, but, uh, a few months ago I had a, a, a procedure, it was barely a surgery, but it was quite long, about six hours, not dangerous, uh, in Canada, but it must have cost a fortune. Uh, all the people involved in a Toronto hospital, every ethnic and religious background you can, and they were all so kind and professional and lovely and now, I've paid for that in that I've paid taxes, but there was no bill at the end. I think that there is something almost miraculous about that, that we've achieved. People say, oh, we're, you know, we've lost Christianity, we're post-Christian. What is that if not a manifestation of gospel values and gospel virtues? That someone, and forget me, the guy in the bed next to me that night was living in subsidized housing on his own. Probably had nothing. He was getting uh, triple bypass surgery with no bill at the end. I think that, and when you look at the, the the Labour Party that owed more to Methodism than to Marxism, our Socialist Party in Canada was founded by a Baptist minister. These are things to say, John Wetham, the fight against slavery, these are things to celebrate. And, and nonconformist Christianity, the best of the Church of England as well. But when you, you look at conservative Christianity in the United States, which is so politically conservative, I think that's fairly recent. I would argue that's more a product of the early 20th century, and even more so uh, the 1960s. Interesting. I mean, I just want to come on to the... We talked about sexuality. The, the book um, does address that. It's by no means the only theme. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting you said that these debates over sexuality typify the problem faced by the modern church, confusion over what scripture actually means. Um, could you say a bit more about that debate and how you, I guess you once thought the Bible taught one thing, now you think something different. Um, what was that process like? Well, I was wrong then, I'm right now. <laughs> uh, I didn't quote scripture that often. I mean, the Catholic Church does, but the Catholic argument, I think, was more based on natural law, what they would see as natural law. As I, I don't know, if I say evolved, it sounds a bit patronizing. Um, but as I've changed on this view, um, and also studying with a, a wonderful Pauline scholar uh, for a few years, when someone quotes Romans 1 to you, and especially when this is on social media, and they say, why don't you read Romans 1? And you say, well, I, I do, and I, I try to do it in Greek. And it's hard to have a, a discussion. But when you really look at the context, and anything, was he referring to two loving people of the same gender? 
in a sacrificial, lifelong commitment to love one another, was he? Or is he talking about straight men using boys in pagan initiation rituals? And even if you look at the, the, the numerical aspect of, there's obviously a reference here. And this is not me saying that scripture is to be ignored. On the contrary, it's to be embraced, but it has to be understood. And Paul is very complex. And he is writing to people uh, 2,000 years ago, and he's responding to very specific issues generally as well. Now, Jesus doesn't talk about it at all. Uh, again, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a view on it, but he does mention divorce. Now, I would argue he opposes divorce because of what it did to women. Women were, I mean, they'd have nothing if they were divorced. But you can make the argument that Jesus said no to divorce. The people who are often vehemently opposed to equal marriage have found a way around divorce. And, you know, it's interesting how they do that. I mean, even the Catholic Church, they would say, no, that's, that's not divorce. That's something, an element of something different. It, it is divorce, really. And I, I mean, I also, and again, I would never say this was absolute, but I do think when Jesus addresses the centurion and the context around that, and when occupied Jewish people of the, of the time would say, oh, you know, the Romans go back to their barracks and, you know, what they're up to. And so there was this homophobic uh, gesture by a conquered people. Uh, plus, the language he uses is love for his servant. It was a profound love. And I do think that many people hearing and watching would have thought, well, what's going on here? And Jesus says, you're amazing. I wish, I wish all my guys were like you. And I don't know. I think it's worth considering. I think David and Jonathan is worth considering. I, I, I just, you can't cherry pick three or four references and say, that's it. That's, so that's the final argument about people who happen to be born gay and the pain we've caused for so many and are still causing what, what, what do you think in the Church of England? Some bit, a few, few bishops recently have, have have publicly expressed support for same-sex marriage mm. for the first time. Where, where a lot of our Anglicans here, I think, are is is in an acceptance that same-sex relationships can be blessed and loving and godly, but that marriage isn't the right category to put them in. Yeah, and I yeah. think um, and that we should move towards some sort of pastoral accommodation or blessing service, but not marriage and some people say that would be far too divisive you know for the Anglican communion even within the Church of England I mean what do you think of more of a middle way solution I mean obviously Anglican Church of Canada's yeah I would say this we've had equal marriage in Canada for some time now nothing much has changed I mean really the the world moves on you barely know and in the church what happened in Canada is we didn't actually vote for it as a as a national church so in the end, it was, as opposed as, uh, to the American church. So in the end, it was, it was just left up to diocese. And in mine, the diocese of Niagara, I, I don't know, but I think you'd be quite pushed to find a church that wouldn't marry. Uh, I don't know, but I, but there, I'm, I know there are churches in Toronto that probably would say no. And that's okay. Um, it's not ideal for everybody, but... Compromise also is a, a beautiful thing. It's a tough one. It's so difficult. Uh, I, you know, obviously I spend time with people who, who they've suffered a great deal. I mean, I have enormous respect for gay Christians, how they've stayed in churches when they face so much opposition, hostility. Um, I also understand the internationalism of the communion. And I know here there's a strong evangelical wing and a more conservative Catholic wing within the Church of England. 
And in some areas where there's growth, uh, there's a more conservative opinion. And what I do dislike is that the idea that if you disagree with me on this issue, you're not a, a Christian. I've suffered that. You you are not a Christian, even though you you, may, you say you say the creed and believe all of it. The fact that you believe in, in, in gay marriage means you're not a Christian. I find that to be repugnant. And I would never say to someone who doesn't believe in equal marriage, you can't, you're not a Christian. That's just not true at all. I mean, uh, abortion's uh, another issue that provokes strong feelings and mm. pain and things like that. I mean, what, I mean, how have your views changed on that? And, and, and how are you dealing with that in the, in the book? And why? Well, on the, on the abortion issue, um, that's probably where I've changed the most because I used to be quite... Uh, um, strongly pro-life opposed to abortion. Although, having said that, I think my view was there could be a compromise where in Canada it it was illegal after the third month, which doesn't make much difference because almost all are before then. Um, and But I, I've changed be, because, uh, well, part of it is reality, just seeing life close up. And I would like abortion rates to decline. And I'm pretty sure I, would, I said it in the book that this has been achieved and can be achieved if well, socialised medicine, which you have here, uh, but subsidised daycare, fully funded, good sex ed in schools, so kids actually know what what is going on, uh, make sure that uh, dads pay for the upkeep of their children, uh, empower women, eradicate poverty. There's so much we can do. You can't criminalise women. I would, I, so I would always oppose abortion being criminalised. But I would encourage policies that I think are Christian policies that, that lead to fewer women needing to have abortions. But I do believe choice is is, is vital. There, it's a very hard biblical argument. The Abrahamic faiths really believe that life begins at the first breath, not a conception. The Old Testament does contain one passage that says abortion should take place at a certain time. It's when adultery is involved. I don't think we have to rely on that, but nor do we rely on... I got into an argument recently about this, and the two, you know, I knew you in the womb, I made you in the womb, and the, and, and, and the child jumped. This is poetry. Um, scripture is, it's God-inspired, and it's vital, um, but it's sometimes metaphor and poetry, and I don't believe they're writing about the precise scientific notion of fetal development here. And they're also talking about people who are unusual. It's not everyone does this. These people are very, very, one of them is the Messiah is coming. So... To quote those passages, to spend your life opposing abortion, and that's something I, I can't understand. And and if you work with poverty and, and, and abuse and other issues like this, you realize that abortion is really a symptom of something else, and that's what you should be dealing with. So um, there used to be a, like a, a seamless garment movement, it was called in the Catholic Church, used to be a more left-of-centre opposition to abortion. That's pretty much gone now, though. It probably exists here a little. But I can tell you that in the United States, those people have been driven out. When Donald Trump comes forward and, and tells people he's absolutely opposed to abortion, <laughs> and then, you know, sorry, forgive my cynicism, and he's championed by, by that movement and seeing some of the violence of the, the anti-abortion movement, and, and the monomania. I mean, this is the only issue for some people, particularly in the United States. It's the only issue they will talk about. And it, and it goes hand in hand with other very right-wing policies. And ironically, horribly, many of the policies that they advocate will make abortion more necessary because 
it will impoverish women who have very little anyway. Just finally, um, I know you write in the book that you're, I'm just thinking who, who it's aimed at because you're, you, I think you hope people outside the church will read it and it'll mm-hmm. build bridges and, and create dialogue, but you say you're not seeking to convert people necessarily, but what, what's your aim, particularly for those who might pick up this book or be given to it, who, are, who don't think of themselves as Christians or perhaps have left the church or... I'd love to convert people, really. I was pretty... <laughs> um, and I have had people who said, you know, I'm actually going to go back to church now, and it's wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a priest. I do want people to hear the gospel. Um, I suppose I, I want to give um, some a little bit of meat to those people who maybe believe these things without having thought about them too much, so they can say, oh, you know, it helps them. So to back those people up, to explain to, to people outside of the church, we might not be the ogres that you think we are. And I'm probably being a bit optimistic here, but some people who perhaps have very different views who will think again. I think there are some who do, but I'm not going to kid myself that there are huge numbers of people who are very much on the other side of the, of the arguments who are saying, my God, I didn't think of that. There are some, but uh, I'm not naive. But I, just in general, I, I and I, the response in Canada and, and, and in the US actually has been very good in that way uh, of people just saying oh that's interesting I didn't quite realize that or that was always the Jesus I thought was but then I saw something different and so reassured people there are quite a few biblical references but there's a lot of personal stories and so you don't have to be familiar with the scripture or and I don't think you have to be a Christian and there are non-Christians as I say who've read it and enjoyed it so Anyone, I hope. I mean, it's part of public discourse. The Christian world matters. It matters in politics. And you know, Barack Obama, for example, is a very devout Christian man. I, mean, I, I know this from an author who he met with. He actually took time out of his schedule to meet with this person. And he was attacked for being a Satanist and by the, the right. Donald Trump, who I can't look into his soul, but I, would be, I don't think he probably is a Christian believer. Maybe I'm wrong. But he was championed by these same people. So here is Obama, devout in his faith, thinking and praying very hard about what it is to be a follower of Christ, condemned, and Donald Trump championed by the same people. You've got to enter into the public square when that situation has evolved. Brilliant. Thank you very much for coming us. Lovely interview. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.